go across the sea for me to see to my love there she goes above the misty hills to the clouds that are above she rides high on disco lights but i fear that she smells my fear I once danced in a rainbow below the earth Only once, but nothing was more clear That I must continue to fight for the divine Right to die the tunnel And as far too bright, man, it seems out of sight Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. And this is Haha ha, Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. Haha ha, No. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's um, Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. <laughs> yes. Possibly true, possibly not. <laughs> possibly true. We'll never know. No one will ever know. No one will. There's no such thing as the internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a little bit sick. Mm-hmm. I think I might have a sinus infection. Hopefully, it's just a sinus infection. Yeah. Um, but if I'm a little bit spacey, or if my voice sounds um, like Raspier it's being than usual, <laughs> dragged through broken glass, uh, please forgive me. And it's only temporary. It is. We saw the new Star, Star Wars, Wars last yes, night. Yes, we did. Did you like it? I thought it was entertaining. Yeah. That's what my thesis is. Yeah. I'm not one that really delves too much into like Star Wars, like analogy. Yeah, I like lightsabers. I like Ray's story. Yeah, although I still don't like, not to give too much away, but you didn't I like liked the... the idea that she was nobody with nothing. They kind of like yanked that out from underneath the rug, which yeah. whatever they retcon that. Yeah, but at least they, at least in the Last Jedi, they showed that you know. Like, nobody's can be something when they show, like, mm-hmm. that little kid having the force and stuff like that. Right. Um, but I enjoyed it. I liked the idea of, like, former Jedis right. still being, like, there to help, if that makes sense. I There's, really like that a lot. Yeah. That, that scene near the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to watch it again. There's five movies in the new... Uh, in the Disney Star Wars, mm-hmm. uh, which one is your favorite so oh, far? Rogue One, Rogue by one. far. Seven. That one's phenomenal. Yes, Matt- I watched it not too long ago <laughs> in my room, like the other night. I think you were watching it out here, and when I came out one morning, yeah. And then yeah. I probably didn't finish it. And I finished it in there. <laughs> Matt said that he thought it was boring. I was like, "You're wrong." Shut up. I usually agree with him on some movie thing, on most movie things. Yeah, he. He did not like it. He um, he did not like uh, Rise uh, Rise of the Skywalker. No, um, but he was a big fan of the Last Jedi. And I like the Last Jedi though. I like the first two hours of the Last Jedi. Oh yeah. I don't like the third hour of the Last Jedi. <laughs> Both the fact that there is a third hour yeah. and that I I didn't like the writing of it. But, um, Excuse me. But it, the. Rise of the Skywalker retcons a lot of the stuff that Ryan Johnson had set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that his name, Ryan Johnson? That's how I pronounce it when okay. I see it. Um, Sometimes I say Rain, even though it's I. Yeah. But in my head, I I still consider it Rain. Yeah, but that's a cool name, guy or girl. But Matt was just like I. I would have preferred another Ryan Johnson movie, and I'm like, I understand that. I just. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was. I was completely serviceable action adventure movie oh yeah yeah wholeheartedly there was one scene that made everyone gasp (laughs) (laughs) and katie almost walked out (laughs) no i'm not gonna spoil it though but it was it did it caught me off guard yeah i kind of i kind of thought just from the way the the scene was building that that was how it was going to turn out really yeah wow but like you know that I had read the spoilers mm-hmm. before we went into the movie, so I was I like, "Oh, this is what they're setting up. This is what's going to happen." Uh, um, and so I kind of saw it okay. coming. 
Um, but yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I don't want to give too many spoilers away. Right. Um, oh, uh, Christine Renee Farley, our uh, act- actor slash actress. Um, she's come out as genderqueer. Mm. So, uh, cheers. Shay, sure pronouns or they, them pronouns. They have come out as genderqueer. Respect. Respect. <laughs> um, so that's a cool thing that's happened. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, you have big, big news. Yeah. I still can't get over. Wanna... I've been texting several people, but I got a job offer today. Nice. I finally get to leave a place that I don't want to be at anymore. <laughs> Even though it's already stepping down. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to see what comes of it. I'm really excited that you're public sector now. You're no longer working for the uh, big giant evil corporation. I'm not. After we get off this, I have to sell my <laughs> shares before they take them all away from me, though. Yeah. <laughs> Remind me to do that after we get off this podcast. I've been telling her for like four years. That I've been trying for five years <laughs> <laughs> to leave. And hallelujah. Mm-hmm. So I should be, I should start it literally at the beginning of the year. New year, new job. Yeah. Fuck yes. That's what Amy <laughs> was saying. <laughs> um, yeah. That's super good. What about you? Uh, I'm off for the next two weeks. You're um, off starting today. That's I'm so off starting exciting. today. And we left work about an hour early. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't clean the carpets when you were off. They had to clean them. But it was good. Four o'clock this afternoon. Then you got to leave an yep. hour. You got to start your vacation an hour earlier. Yep. Um, and I had a student come in at three uh, to do a master promissory note and um, entrance counseling, which usually takes about thirty to forty-five minutes. And so I was like, oh, I'm not going to get out of here until three forty-five. But she was an English a second language student, and so I was like, I'm just going to summarize all of this information. <laughs> Um, and then I'll give you the information in Spanish and you can just take it home and read it. Yeah. And then if you have any questions, you can give us a call and we'll answer any questions that you have. She was like, that sounds good. Cool. It's like just doing everything for you. Yep. Fine with me. Yep. One of my coworkers, when I walked into the, the administration office, she was like, did you ever even let your student get back to your office? I was like, yeah. Barely. Barely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I hope you enjoy your two-week vacation. I'm looking forward to just recharging a little bit, especially not not feeling well. Yeah. Um, Getting to... How perfect. You get sick when you're on vacation. Yeah, I know. It was really polite of my... uh, (laughs) Body. My body to wait until Friday. Skipped my birthday. Thank God. Skipped yes, Star your Wars. Was today. Or, yes. It was two days this, ago. Yeah, it was this week, is what I was trying week. to say. Um, but yeah, it was really convenient for my body to just like wait it out. And I was feeling like vaguely ill on like Tuesday, but it was like manageable. And then this morning I woke up and my throat was scratchy and I was like, I don't want this. Fuck this. Yeah. Yeah. I considered calling out of work. Uh, taking an extra day on my vacation but yeah. i was like no that would look sketchy it, yeah it would <laughs> even though they probably know you well enough uh yeah i hope so uh do you want to get in today's episode i'm ready all right have you ever heard of valentina tereshkova is she russian she is russian yeah i've heard of her no i've heard of her <laughs> I'm sure that you've at least heard of her before because she did yeah. something notable. Okay. Um, Valentina Tereshkova was born on March 6, 1937 in Bolshoya in a village on the Volga River. Um, her father, Vladimir Tereshkov, was a former tractor driver and a sergeant in the command of the tank of the Soviet Army. Um, he died in the Finnish Winter War uh during World War II when Tereshkova was only two years old. Um, he and her mother Elena Fyodorovna Tereshkova had three children. Uh, after her father's death, her family moved to the family to Yaroslavl, seeking better employment opportunity, and became employed at the Krasny Perikop Cotton Mill. Um, Tereshkova enrolled in school at age 10 and graduated at 17, uh, she began working at a tire factory and later at a textile mill 
but continued her education by correspondence courses to graduate from the Light Industry Technical School in 1960. Tereshkova also became interested in parachuting from a young age and trained in skydiving at a local aero club. Making That's her, so cool. I know, right? Uh, making her first jump at age 22 in 1959. While still employed as a textile worker, she trained as a competitive parachutist, which she kept a secret from her family. She also joined the local Komsomol, or Communist Youth League, in Yaroslavl, serving as a secretary of the organization in 1960 and 1961. In 1962, she became a member of the Communist Party. Her experience in skydiving contributed to her selection as a cosmonaut. Yes. After the flight of Yuri Gagarin in 1961, Nikolai Kamanin, director of the cosmonaut training, read in American media that female pilots were training to be astronauts, which we've talked about on the show before. In his diary, he wrote, we cannot allow that the first woman in space will be an American. Is this the first lady in space? Maybe. Yes, I have heard of her. Approval uh, was granted for five female cosmonauts in the next uh, group of cosmonauts, which would begin training in 1963. To increase the odds of sending a Soviet woman into space first, uh, the female cosmonauts began their training before the males. Mm-hmm. The rules required that all, that the potential cosmonaut be a parachutist under 30 years of age, less than 170 centimeters in height, or about 5 feet 7 um, and yes. no more than 70 kilograms or about 154 pounds in weight. I You qualify. Qualify. <laughs> Rachel qualifies Not for Russian, a cosmonaut. Not Russian, though. Right. <laughs> but we'll skip that <laughs> By January 1962, the All-Union Voluntary Society for Assistance for the, to the Army, Air Force, and Navy, DOSAF, had selected 400 candidates for consideration. After the initial screening, 58 of those candidates met the requirements, which a common end reduced to 23. On 16th February 1962, Tereshkova was selected along with four other candidates to join the female cosmonaut corps. Since they had no military experience, they started with the rank of private in the Soviet Air Forces. Training included isolation tests, centrifuge tests, thermochamber tests, decompression chamber testing, and pilot training in MIG-15 UTI jet fighters. Tereshkova underwent water recovery training at sea, where several motorboats were used to agitate the waters to simulate rough conditions. She also began studying at the Joukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy and graduated a few years later after her flight. Uh, the group spent several months in basic training, and after finishing their training and passing an examination, Kamenin offered them the option to be commissioned as regular Air Force officers. With advice from the male cosmonauts, they chose to accept Kamenin's offer, as it would make it harder for the program to get rid of them after the first flight. So they were already thinking in their heads, you know, once we do this, they're just going to get rid of us. Yep. All five women became junior lieutenants in the Air Force in December 1962. Tatiana Kuznetsova became el- ineligible for the first flight due to illness, and Jana Yarkina was performing poorly in training, leaving Tereshkova, Irina Solovyoyeva, Irina Solovyoyeva, and Valentina Panomaryova as leading candidates. Sorry to any of our Russian listeners. <laughs> Originally, a joint mission profile was developed that would see two women launched into space on solo Vostok flights on consecutive days in March or April of 1963, and it was intended that Tereshkova would launch first in Vostok 5, while Ponomaryova would follow her into orbit on Vostok 6. However, this flight plan was altered in March 1963. Vostok 5 would now carry a male cosmonaut, Valerie Baikovsky flying alongside a woman aboard Vostok 6, both to be launched in June 1963. Huh. The State Space Commission nominated Tereshkova to pilot Vostok 6 at their meeting on the 21st of May. Kamenin uh, called her Gagarin in a skirt. The Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, uh, who you may have heard of before, was happy with the propaganda potential of her selection since she was the daughter of a collective farm worker who died in the Winter War, and confirmed her selection. Solovyoyeva was appointed as her first backup, and Tereshkova was promoted to lieutenant before her flight and to captain mid-flight. 
After the successful launch of Vostok 5 in, uh, June, on June 14th, Tereshkova began final preparations for her own flight. On the morning of 16th, uh, on the morning of the 16th of June, 1963, Tereshkova and her backup Solovyova were both dressed in spacesuits and taken to the launch pad by bus. Following the tradition set by Gagarin, Tereshkova also urinated on a bus tire, becoming the first woman to do so. Uh, after completing her communication, life support right. checks, <laughs> she was sealed inside the Vostok. After a two-hour countdown, Vostok 6 launched faultlessly, and Tereshkova became the first woman in space. Yay! She, rem- she remains the only woman to have ever flown in space solo, and the youngest woman That's in crazy. space at 26 years old. Oh my gosh, what did you do when you were 26? <laughs> I, what was I doing? Didn't go to space. 26? I did not go to space. Uh, her call sign in on her flight was Cheka, or Seagull in English, hmm. and uh, later commemorated as the name of an asteroid, 1671 Cheka. After a launch, she radioed down, It is I, Seagull. Everything is fine. I see the horizon. It's a sky blue with a dark strip. How beautiful the Earth is. Everything is going well. Mm-hmm. Vostok 6 was the final Vostok flight. And was launched two days after Vostok Five. Vostok Six was the uh, final Vostok flight, and was launched two days after Vostok Five, which carried Baikovsky into a five-day mission. The two vessels spent three days in orbital planes, thirty degrees apart, and during Tereshkova's first orbit, approached each other to within five kilometers. Although they were able to communicate via radio, neither could be sure if they saw each other. Cameras placed inside both the spacecrafts transmitted live footage that was broadcast on Soviet state television. Tereshkova also maintained a f- the f- a flight log and took photographs of the horizon, which were later used to identify aerosol layers within the atmosphere. With a single flight, she logged more flight time than the combined times of all American astronauts who had flown before that date. Damn! Her mission was used to continue the uh, medical studies on humans in spaceflight, and offered comparative data of the effects of space travel on women. Although Tereshkova experienced nausea and physical discomfort for much of the flight, she orbited the Earth 48 times and spent two days... 48 times? Yep. 48 times Why in two days. Why not round to a nice 50? <laughs> you would think that they would <laughs> want to. 50, 50 rotations yeah. for 50 states... Really rub it in the American's faces. Yeah. That's cute. Uh, she orbited the Earth 48 times and spent two days, 22 hours, and 50 minutes in space. As planned in all Vostok missions, Tereshkova ejected the capsule during its descent at about four miles above the Earth and made a parachute landing 620 kilometers or about 385 miles northeast of Karaganda, Kazakhstan at 8.20 a.m. in Anna, June 19th. Baikovsky landed three hours after her. Nice. Later on, Tereshkova revealed that she had difficulty controlling the parachute due to strong winds. However, she landed safely, uh, receiving just a bruise on her nose. And then she had dinner with some local villagers. Wow. That's so fucking badass. Yep. According to the Russian newspaper Pravda, one million followers were brought in to celebrate the success of the dual flights and greet the cosmonauts in Moscow. On June 22, 1963, Khrushchev greeted Baikovsky, dressed in his uniform, who saluted while Khrushchev hugged and kissed Cherishkova, who was dressed in civilian attire. In front of thousands in attendance, the premier also announced that both cosmonauts were awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union Medal. All three made speeches from atop Lenin's tomb on the Red Square. Tereshkova said, My father perished defending our country, and my mother brought up her three children. We know the bitterness of that war. We don't need war. She was referring to the German invasion of Russia that began 22 years ago to that day. Uh-huh. Sometime <clears> after <throat> her mission, she was reportedly asked how the Soviet Union should thank her for her service to her country. Tereshkova requested that the government search for and publish the location of where her father was killed in action. This was done and a monument was erected at the site in Lamedi Karelia, now on the Russian side of the border. The evening of June 22nd, a reception was held in the Kremlin in which both Baikovsky and Tereshkova were awarded the Order of Lenin. 
Less than a week after her, tri- after her return from space, Moscow hosted the International Women's Congress on June 24th, where Tereshkova and Baikovsky were greeted by a gathering of about 2,000 women from 119 countries. Of all the Russian cosmonauts, Tereshkova received the most requests to visit foreign nations. Her trip in particular required pre-approval from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Defense, and the KGB. Um, all the Vostok cosmonauts toured extensively, but Tereshkova most of all. She made 42 trips abroad between 1963 and 1970. How many? 42. Damn! 42 trips in seven years, which I think is just about five a year. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Um, on October 1st, 1963, Tereshkova arrived in Havana, Cuba, and met with Fidel Castro. <laughs> she toured the country, which at the time was dealing with the effects of Hurricane Flora. The fellowship, uh, the following month, she presented a silver cup, which went to the team, uh, from the Soviet Union, who won gold in all five boat classes at the Women's 1963 European Rowing Championships, held in Kim Key, near Moscow. By February 1964, Tereshkova had been promoted to captain and was pregnant when she visited Elizabeth II of England, who was also pregnant at the time. Nice. Except for a few months break that year, Tereshkova went on a continuous and exhausting world tour, returning to her public duties only two months after giving birth to her daughter. After her spaceflight, Tereshkova became a national and international role model. She received congratulatory telegrams and letters from around the world. These telegrams express the impact that Tereshkova had on other countries outside the Soviet Union. Women were particularly excited about her flight. For example, in New Delhi, Tereshkova was a feminist standard bearer, bringing a message of hope for enslaved Indian womanhood. She was already a role model for the Soviet Union as being the first female in space, but she was also a a role model for other women around the world. Uh, she was a well-known representative of the uh, Soviet Union abroad and became a member of the World Peace Council in 1966 and a member of the Yaroslavl Soviet in 1967. She was also the Soviet representative to the UN Conference for the International Women's Year in Mexico City in 1975. She led the Soviet delegation to the World Conference on Women in Copenhagen and was interested in social socialist internationalism and women's roles in guaranteeing, guaranteeing world peace. Tereshkova was also chosen for several political positions. She was a member of the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, a uh, member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and a member of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet. She was appointed Vice President of the International Women's Democratic Federation and President of the Soviet Algerian Friendship Society. Although she desired to continue pursuing a career as a cosmonaut and engineer, her superiors had different plans for her in politics. Following Gagarin's death, the Soviet space program was not willing to risk losing another hero. Against her wishes, she was appointed as leader of the Committee for Soviet Women in 1968, and a few months after, she graduated with honors from the Joukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy in October 1969. The team of women cosmonauts was disbanded, and a woman would not go to space again until Svet- Svetlana Savitskaya in 1982. That's a long gap. Mm-hmm. 1969 to 1982. Uh, by 1976, Tereshkova was a colonel in the Soviet Air Force. In April 1977, she earned a doctorate in aeronautical engineering and underwent the medical examinations to qualify for spaceflight when selection of a new class of women cosmonauts began in 1978. Cool. It's cool that she wants to go back. Yeah. Uh, Although she did not get the chance to go to space again, she remained an instructor at the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. She remains politically active following the collapse of the Soviet Union, but lost elections to the National State Duma in 1995. Uh, Tereshkova was pr- then promoted to an honorary, mank- uh, an honorary rank of Major General. On April 28, 1997, she left the Russian Air Force due to reaching the age of compulsory retirement at 60 years old. In 2003, Tereshkova ran again for a seat in the State Duma. Uh, I think that she lost that one as well. Okay. In 2007, Tereshkova was invited to Prime Minister Vladimir Putin's residence in Novo Ogu- Ogaryovo? 
I think is how it's pronounced. Novo Agariovo. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the celebration of her 70th birthday. While there, she said that she would like to fly to Mars, even if it meant that it was a one-way trip. Ugh. Uh, she was elected in 2008 to her regional par- parliament, the Yaroslavl Oblast Duma. Uh, on December 4th, 2011, Tereshkova was elected to the state Duma, the lower house of the Russian legislator, uh, as a representative of the Yaroslavl Oblast and a member of the United Russia Party. Uh, in the Sixth State Duma, together with Yelena Mizulina, Irina Yerovaya, and Andrei Scotch, she was a member of the Interfactional Committee for the Protection of Christian Values. In this capacity, she supported the introduction of amendments to the preamble of the Constitution of Russia to add that orthodoxy is the basis of Russia's national and cultural identity. Uh, on 18 September of 2016, Tereshkova was re-elected to the Seventh State Duma, and she currently serves as a deputy chairperson of the Committee on the Federal Structure and Local Government. She married cosmonaut Andrian Nikolaev on November 3rd, 1963, uh, at the Moscow Wedding Palace with Khrushchev presiding um, at the wedding party. Cool. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine being an astronaut married to another astronaut? No. I would make puns all day. This is out of this world. <laughs> you know, that kind of shit. Right. <laughs> Uh, the marriage was was encouraged by the Soviet space authorities as a fairy tale message to the country. Shoot. General Kamenin, uh, head of the space program, described it as probably useful for the politics and science. On June eighth, nineteen sixty four, nearly one year after her spaceflight, she gave birth to their daughters Elena, Andrea, Andrianovna, Nikolaevna, Tereshkova. That's a mouthful. Yeah. The first person with a, both a mother and a father who had traveled into space. Uh, their marriage um, grew apart. Uh, Tereshkova told her uh, biographer, um, Lady Lothian, that the marriage ended in 1977. She and Nikolaev divorced in 1982, and Tereshkova married Yuli Shaposhnikov, a surgeon she had met during her medical examinations to requalify as a cosmonaut. They remained married until Shaposhnikov's death in 1999. Uh, as of today, she is still serving as the um, the Duma uh, for the Seventh State, I believe. Cool. That's great. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a man named Jim Henson? I think <laughs> so. He was, he was the puppet guy, right? Yeah, yeah. he's a puppeteer. A one puppeteer. A muppeteer. <laughs> <laughs> James Maury Henson was born on September 24th, 1936 in Greenville, Mississippi, the younger of two children. He was actually raised as a Christian scientist and spent his early childhood um, in Leland, Mississippi, before moving with his family to University Park, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. Okay. in the late 40s. He remembered the arrival of the family's first television as the biggest event of his adolescence, which I can only imagine, too. Right. Uh, being heavily influenced by radio ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and the early television puppets of Burr Tiltrum or Kukula, Fran and Ollie, and Bill and Cora Baird, which I didn't have time to look them up, and I'm really intrigued by. Yeah. He remained a Christian scientist, at least into his 20s, when he taught Sunday school, but he wrote to a Christian science church in... 1975 to inform them that he was no longer a practicing member. So, Jim Henson began working for WTOP-TV, now WUSA-TV, in 1954 while attending Northwestern High School. So, while he was in high school creating puppets for a Saturday morning children's show called The Junior Morning Show. That's pretty cool. That's kind of how he got started. He enrolled at the University of Maryland College Park as a studio arts major upon graduation, thinking, oh, then he might become a commercial artist. A puppetry class offered in the Applied Arts Department, which, how fucking cool is that? <laughs> it introduced him to the craft and textiles courses in the College of Home Economics, and he graduated in 1960 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Home Economics. Um, 
As a freshman, he created Sam and Friends, a five-minute puppet show for WRC-TV. The character on Sam and Friends were forerunners of the Muppets. Okay. And the show included a prototype of Henson's most famous character, Kermit the Frog. He remained um, at WRC-TV from 54 till 61, so for quite a few years. In the show, Jim Henson began experimenting with techniques that changed the way in which puppetry was actually used on television, including using the framing defined by the camera shot to allow the puppet performer to work from off camera. Okay. I think beforehand, I have to see that I had to look up. You kind of like saw them or you saw the strings, all that stuff. Um, kind of like what you expect from like normal puppeteering, like at a, a show, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He believed that television puppets needed to have life and sensitivity and began making characters from flexible fabric-covered foam rubber, allowing them to express a wider array of emotions at a time when many Muppets were made of carved wood. Yeah, and they just open and close their mouth and can move their arms stoically. He gave Um, them a little bit of life. Yeah, a marionette's arms are manipulated by strings, but Henson used rods to move his Muppet's arms, allowing greater control of expression. Additionally, he wanted the Muppet characters to speak more creatively than was possible for previous puppets, which had random mouth movements, so he used precise mouth movements to match the dialogue. Which seems like, well, duh, but he was the one who like came up with the idea. Right, right. Um, so when Jim Henson began working on Sam and Friends, he asked his fellow University of Maryland senior, Jane Nebel, to assist him. The show was a financial success, but he began to have doubt as going into a career performing with puppets once he graduated. He spent several months in Europe, where he was inspired by European puppet f- performers who looked on their work as an art form. So that kind of inspired him, like, oh, I can, this is an art form, you know? Right. He began dating Jane, though, after his return to the United States. Nice. Jim Henson spent much of the next two decades working in commercials, which I didn't realize how long he had done that. Um, talk shows and children's projects before realizing his dreams of the Muppets as entertainment for everybody. The popularity of his show on Sam and Friends in the late 1950s led to a series of guest appearances on network talk and variety shows. He appeared as a guest um, on the Steve Allen Show, the Jack Parr Show, and the Ed Sullivan Show. Um, Sullivan introduced him as Jim Newsom and his putt-putts. <laughs> um, these television grad plat- television broadcasts greatly increased his exposure, leading to hundreds of commercial appearances by Henson's characters throughout the 60s. Okay. So this is what's entertaining, I think. Among the most popular of his commercials was a series for the local Wilkins Coffee Company in Washington, D.C., in which his Muppets were able to get away with a greater level of slapstick violence than might have been acceptable to human actors, and eventually worked into many acts on the Muppet show. So in the first Wilkins ad, a Muppet named Wilkins is poised behind a cannon seen in profile. Another Muppet named Wantkins is in front of its barrel. Wilkins asks, what do you think of Wilkins' coffee? And Wonkins responds gruffly, never tasted it. Wilkins fires the cannon and blows Wonkins away, then turns the cannon directly towards the viewer and ends the ad with, now what do you think of Wilkins? <laughs> Henson later explained, Till then, advertising agencies believed that the hard sell was the only way to get their message over on television. We took a very different approach. We tried to sell things by making people laugh. Right. The first seven-second commercial, that was only seven seconds long, um, for Wilkins was an immediate hit and was syndicated and reshot by Henson for local coffee companies throughout the United States. Yeah. And he ultimately produced more than 300 coffee ads. Um, Henson sold the rights to Wilkins Coffee who allowed marketing executive John T. Brady to sell the rights to some toy makers and film studios. However, in July of 92, so this is years, years later, Brady was sued by Jim Henson Productions for unfair competition in addition to copyright and trademark infringement. Um, Henson Company claimed that Brady was incorrectly using Henson's name and likeness in their attempts to license the characters, which right. I'm not getting into that, and they don't really get into that. Because at that point, it was his production company and not <laughs> him. Um, so in 1963, back to like our timeline. So in 1963, Jim Henson has now married Jane. Jim and Jane. Yep. And they moved to New York City where the newly formed Muppets Inc. resided for some time and Henson lived there until his death. Jane quit performing to raise their children. Henson hired writer Jerry Jewell 
in 61 and puppet performer Frank Oz in 63 to replace her. Um, Henson credited them both with developing much of the humor and character of his Muppets. He and Oz developed a close friendship and a performing partnership that lasted until Jim Henson's death, which is really a beautiful thing. Yeah. Not his death, but their friendship. Their friendship. Their teamwork is particularly evident in their portrayals of Bert and Ernie, Kermit and his piggy, and Kermit and Fozzie Bear. Henson talks about show appearances culminated when he devised Rolf, (laughs) a piano playing anthropomorphic dog that became the first Muppet to make a regular guest appearance on the Jimmy Dean show. Right. Henson was, I like this story, Henson was so grateful for his break that he offered Jimmy Dean a 40% interest in his production company, but Dean declined, stating that Henson deserved all the rewards for his own work, a decision of conscience that Dean never regretted. From 63 to 66, Henson began exploring filmmaking and produced a series of experimental films. His nine-minute experimental film, Timepiece, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. Um, I don't think I've seen that one. I've never heard of it, yeah. And he also produced The Cube in 69. Mm-hmm. And then um, he did a live action movie script with Jerry Joel called The Tale of Sand. Okay. And um, the script remained in the company archives until it was adapted into a 2002 graphic novel, Jim Henson's Tale of Sand. Do, do, do. So in 1969, television producer Joan Gans Cooney and her staff at the Children's Television Workshop were impressed by the quality and creativity of the Henson-led team, so they asked Jim Henson and staff to work full-time on Sesame Street, a children's program for public television that premiered on the National Education Television on November 10th, 1969. Mm -hmm. Part of the show was set aside for a series of funny, colorful puppet characters living on Sesame Street, including Grover, Bert and Ernie, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, and Big Bird. Henson performed the characters of Ernie, game show host Guy Smiley, and Kermit, who appeared as a roving television news reporter. Henson was also involved in producing various shows and animation inserts during the first two seasons. He produced a series of counting films for the numbers 1 through 10, which always ended with with a baker, voiced by Jen Henson himself, falling down the stairs while carrying the featured number of desserts. (laughs) Henson, Oz, and his team were concerned that the company was becoming typecast solely as purveyors of children's entertainment. Right. So they targeted an adult audience with a series of sketches for the first season, the late night television variety show, Saturday Night Live. And I own the first five seasons, and I've seen it. They're, like, in the first episode of it. Um, And they're, like, grittier-looking Muppets and all that stuff. I mean, they're... It was okay. (laughs) Um, Was it funny? I can't remember. It's okay. been a while. I think it would have been funny at the time. Yeah. I think it's dated, which is weird because I don't think like the Muppets, like the original Muppet movies are dated for right. me. You know yeah. what I mean? But those jokes were dated, if yeah. that makes sense. Well, they were probably more topical. So. Yeah, exactly. Henson liked Lauren Michaels' work and wanted to be a part of it, but he ultimately concluded that we were trying to do what we were trying to do and what his writers could write for it never geld. They didn't last that long. The SML writers were not comfortable writing for the characters, and they frequently disbarged Henson's creations. Michael O'Donoghue quipped, I won't write for felt. Okay. Um, Henson began developing a Broadway show and a weekly television series, both featuring the Muppets. Do-do-do. That same year, he scrapped plans for his Broadway show and moved his creative team to England, where the Muppet Show began taping. Mm-hmm. The show featured Kermit as host and a variety of other characters, notably Miss Piggy, Gonzo the Great, and Fozzie Bear, along with other characters such as Animal. Um, Henson's teammates sometimes compared his role to that of Kermit, a shy, gentle boss with a whim of steel. He ran things like an explosion in a mattress factory, which I love that. Mm-hmm. Um... The Muppets appeared in their first theatrical feature film, The Muppet Movie, in yeah. 1979. It was both a critical and financial success. It made $65.2 million domestically and was the 61st highest grossing film of the time. Henson's idol, Edgar Bergen, died at age 25 during production of the film, and Henson dedicated it to his memory. Henson, as Kermit, sang The Rainbow Connection, and it hit number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100 and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. That's awesome. Yeah. And then Henson directed 
The Great Muppet Caper in 1981 followed. Um, and Henson decided to end the Muppet show to concentrate on making films, though the Muppet characters continued to appear in TV and movie specials. Mm-hmm. He also aided others in their work. So here's an idea. Or here's something that might bring back to what we were talking about earlier. The producers of The Empire Strikes Back asked him to aid makeup artist Stuart Freeborn in the creation and articulation of Yoda. Yep. He suggested that George Lucas use Frank Oz as the puppeteer and voice of Yoda, and Oz did so in it and the five subsequent sweet sequel Star Wars films. Right. Isn't that so cool? Yeah. Lucas lobbied unsuccess- unsuccessfully have Oz nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. So, in 82, Jim Henson founded the Jim Henson Foundation to promote and develop the art of puppetry in the United States, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, around that time, he began creating darker and more realistic fantasy films that did not feature Muppets and displayed a growing brooding, brooding uh, interest in morality. He co-directed The Dark Crystal mm-hmm. with Frank Oz, and it was a financial success. Oz directed The Muppets Take Manhattan, which came out in 1984, and it grossed 25.5 domestically, and it ranked top 40 films of 84. Yeah. Um, Labyrinth was a fantasy that Henson directed himself, but it was considered a commercial disappointment, but despite some positive reviews. Well, it's also a a cult classic now. It is a cult classic now. Um, Henson continued creating children's television, such as Fraggle Rock and the animated Muppet Babies, which I've never seen. You've never seen the Muppet Babies? I've never seen the Muppet Babies. <laughs> I know Cameron would be so upset with me. And then the next year, he returned to television with the Jim Henson Hour, which mixed lighthearted Muppet fare with more risque material. It was critically well-received and won him another Emmy for outstanding and directing a variety of music program, but it was canceled after 13 episodes due to low ratings, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. He blamed failure on NBC's constant rescheduling, which does ruin a show. Oh, yeah. In late 1989, Henson entered into negotiations to sell its company to the Disney Company, because we all know they own everything now, for almost $150 million, hoping that he would be able to spend a lot more of my time on creative side of things with Disney handling the business matters. By 1990, he had completed production of the television special The Muppets at Walt Disney World mm-hmm. and the Walt Disney World attraction Muppet Vision 3D, and he was developing film ideas on a television series entitled Muppet High. A little bit about his personal life now, because we're kind of getting towards the end of his life. So I told you that he married Jane, Mm -hmm. and they had one, two, three, four, five children. Five children. Yep, five. Henson and his wife separated, though, in 86, after 24 years of marriage, although they remained very close friends for the rest of his life. Yeah. Jane said that Jim was so involved with his work that he had very little time to spend with her or their children. All five of his, his children began working with the Muppets at an early age, partly because one of the best ways of being around him was to work with him, according to one of the daughters. So he was a workaholic. Yeah. Yeah. Henson was also, according to his wife, a strong supporter of the civil rights movement at the time. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. So Henson appeared with Kermit on the Arsenio Hall show on May 4th, 1990, and it was his final television appearance. He disclosed to his publicist that he was tired and had a sore throat but he felt that it could soon go away. He then traveled to North Carolina with his daughter to visit his father and stepmother. Mm. They returned to their home in New York the following day, and Henson canceled a Muppet recording session that had been scheduled for May 14th. His estranged wife came to visit that night. He was having trouble breathing when he woke up around 2 a.m. on the 15th of May and began coughing up blood. He suggested to his wife that he might be dying, but he did not want to take time off from his schedule to visit a hospital. Two hours later, he agreed to be taken by taxi to the emergency room. Shortly after mission, he stopped breathing and was rushed into the intensive care unit. X-ray images taken of his chest revealed that he had multiple obsessions, abscesses, and both of his lungs as a result of a previous bacterial infection. Oh. He was placed on a ventilator, but quickly deteriorated over the next several hours, despite increasingly aggressive treatment with multiple antibiotics. So, literally the next day, on May 16th, 1990, he died at New York Hospital at age 53. Terrible. One doctor said he died from, I can't pronounce it, but it's basically an infection that causes bacterial pneumonia. However, they said, uh, like, a week later, they reclassified it as an organ dysfunction resulting from that. Okay. Um... Bacterial infection, yeah. which, no shit. News spread quickly, and admirers of his work responded from around the world with tributes and condolences. Many of Henson's co-stars and directors from Sesame Street, The Muppets, and other works also shared their thoughts on his death. On May 21st, Henson's public memorial service was conducted in Manhattan, 
and the funeral was described by life as an epic and almost unbearably moving event. Henson was cremated, and in 1992, his ashes were scattered near Taos in New Mexico, and I don't know why. Okay. So, I have a couple of fun facts about him. Cool. Did you know that Jim Henson coined the term Muppet in 1950s while working on TV? Contrary to popular belief, the word is not a combination of puppet and marionette. Henson said it really was just a term we made up since he did very few things with marionettes. I had heard that before, yeah. In the Muppet movie opening scene, Kermit sings the rainbow connection that we all love, Mm -hmm. sitting on a log in the swamp. That scene wasn't as simple as it looked. To get the shot just right, Jim Henson had to crouch inside a custom-made diving bell submerged underwater. Made to look like a a log. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Henson made the original Kermit out of his mother's old turquoise coat. At the time, Kermit wasn't a frog. He was just an abstract lizard with a dis dissected ping pong ball for eyes over the years kermit gained the frog collar turned green and grew webbed feet as henson put it we frogified him (laughs) (laughs) and then um henson wore a beard to cover up his acne scars from his teenage years his Mm -hmm. agent described the look as a cross between a lincoln and jesus so i just really really liked it all but my question to you is do you have a favorite muppet character uh, I really like Animal. He was yeah. my childhood fan favorite. Um, but I also like Rolf. I love Rolf is so yeah, good. Yeah, Rolf is so good. He's just so chill. <laughs> um, do you? I love Fozzie Bear. Yeah. I laugh at his jokes, and yeah. I'm the only one in the audience that laughs at his <laughs> jokes. But the thing is, he never gets a good laugh, and he still does it. Mm-hmm. But I love Rolf because he's just like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm all for it. But yeah. I love fuzzy i there's something about him that just pulls at my heartstrings he's cheesy but he's charming uh-huh. and i like puns and that's yeah. what he does yeah puns <laughs> so that's about i love the muppet movies i don't it's been so long since i've seen the muppet caper mm-hmm. but the one that jason siegel did um a few years back is i think it's phenomenal i think okay. it's such a good film i've never seen it i own it we can watch it okay i re- i think it's jason siegel literally spent eight years trying to make this film yeah and i think he did such a good job it's beautiful it's yeah. a really well done muppet movie and i think cameron completely agrees with me on that one okay i have not seen the sequel or if i have i don't remember it sequel i don't know how i feel about okay uh what do you think of sesame street moving to hbo why is it? I guess HBO bought it. I'm not sure. Hmm. That's rude. Well, the whole point was it was for, it public, was for access. public access. Yeah. yeah. And now it's no longer public access. It's not on. So on I don't PBS have. Anymore. I don't not have a comment. I think it's kind of like atrocious. Yeah, I would agree. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry about the world for that. I don't yeah. know why they are doing that. It. Because Walt Disney feels really bad to me. Yeah, have um, they done it yet? Because I've I th- heard that a while ago. I think that they I think did. they are I there. Think they did last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Because I have HBO and I think it. I've seen like it pop up before. Yeah. So, don't know why I'm acting like I don't know that. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So I really like that. So yeah, I like that animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, animals really good in the the Jason Segel movie. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Jack nice. Black's involved. It's funny. <laughs> Animal uh, calm. <laughs> it's good. It's good. All right. Uh, we're going to get out of here. Mercury is yelling at us that he wants oh to go outside. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to go take him outside and then give him a nice talking to about uh, respecting our time. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be the rest of our night. Uh, yeah. We're going to train him well. <laughs> Uh, I know. <laughs> as always, we're online at uh, absentactivismarts.wordpress.com. You can find both of my books there. You can find free short stories. Um, our, uh, we're on Facebook as Absent Activism Arts, on Twitter as Absent Act Art. Uh, I am on the Fediverse as AWM Rights and on Instagram as AWM Rights. If you want to see pictures of Mercury when he's not being disruptive, um, yeah, is actually really cute. Um, our friend uh, Christine Renee Farley 
just came out as genderqueer, uh, J-R-A-M, and actor slash actress. Uh, go follow their Facebook page. A lot of free videos out. Um, our uh, singer-songwriter is Joshua Paul Brooks. Uh, go follow him on Facebook. He just got signed with a, um, a independent record label uh, operating out of London. Um, he is also currently uh, unhoused, so go support him as a homeless uh, uh, starving artist. Um, Katie is uh, our visual artist. Is that what we sure, were, we'll why call not? We'll call uh, Katie White is our visual artist. She is open for commissions. If you want to get a last minute Christmas gift, uh, she will draw anything. Um, her artwork is up on the website uh, and you can get to her at katiewhite at gmail.com or is it caitlinwhite at gmail.com? I don't think it's Caitlin. It's, it's on the website. Just go to the <laughs> website. Um, that's where all of our, our stuff is. Um, is that everything? Okay. We're going to get out of here. I'm going to go rest my voice yes. and uh, we'll take Mercury outside so he stops whining if at us. I feel like it. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, happy holidays, everyone. We love you. Um, yeah. Under the tongues of men lie the simple truths of terror. But my love's eyes make bright the night skies and clears the stormy weather. In the rain I'm like a wet dog and my hunger it intensifies. But the thunder clears all of my mind's sounds and the fear it is justified. The lightning scorches the plains, the fantasies go up in flame. The distinguished author goes insane, but my love, she remains just the same.